0: Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Welcome everybody. We're going to um, continue on our journey through the book of Genesis tonight. We're going to be picking up in chapter 20. If you'd like to turn there, I would encourage you to join me. In fact, um, if you didn't bring a Bible, there will be one sitting next to you in the back of the pew that you're welcome to use. Genesis being the first book of your Bible, um, it should be pretty easy to find the 20th chapter. Let's just jump right in in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, If this is sounding familiar, of course, that's because it is. In fact, you can tell even in the author's wording here, he assumes we've heard this before. He leaves a good deal of the story out. It's abrupt that he says of Sarah, my wife, is his sister. There's no mention at this point of any of the conversation that we found last time this happened near the beginning of Abraham's time in the promised land as he journeyed down into Egypt. Um, And so there is almost a level of um, foreboding here just that we find ourselves in this same place. But there are some differences. Notice that this situation is lacking any sort of uh, circumstantial cause. Back originally, the reason why uh, Abraham had found himself in Egypt was because there was a famine in the land. And Egypt being a place that was thoroughly watered by the Nile River, was generally protected from those things, and so he was fleeing to provision. Um, Here, though, he's actually in the land, uh, in the southern area of the land, but still in the land nonetheless, in the area known as the Negev, uh, in the land of Gerar, and as happened in Egypt with Pharaoh, although remember here that Sarah is much older at this point, whereas she was 60, she's now in her 90s, and yet um, the situation plays out relatively the same. And so what it says very simply in verse 2 is that Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Okay? Okay. Now verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. In other words, he had not consummated their relationship. There was no sexual activity going on. And so he speaks up and he speaks back to God in this dream and he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, notice just as an aside there that he refers and recognizes the fact that whatever this consequence is, it's not just about him. He doesn't say, will you kill an innocent person? He's not just talking about himself. He's recognizing that the people of Gerar as a whole are threatened by the behavior of the king. And so he holds their... Uh, their case before him. And he says, will you really take out an innocent people? And then he explains, verse five, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, we're not told the circumstances of why this relationship hadn't been consummated, but God fills in the blank for us here and says in some way he hindered it. And we don't know if that's from a, um, you know, a, a full schedule or something circumstantial. We discover later on that what's happening in Abimelech's household uh, is plague-like. In fact, he's going to say later that uh, basically he struck the entire house of Gerar barren. And so it's possible here that there are extenuating circumstances. Abimelech knows something's wrong, he just doesn't know what it is yet. But nonetheless, God says, "I understand that you were ignorant in this matter. In fact, I am the thing I am the one who's protected you from going through this possibility, and he continues on um, and he says. Therefore I did not let you touch her verse 7 now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that, so that he will pray for you and you shall live and so he gives him a command and an explanation here he says command give him back to sorry give her back to her husband and then he says he is a prophet and why are you to give him back so that he will pray for you and you shall live And then he pushes it a little bit further just in case Abimelech didn't know how high the stakes were. But if you did not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who were yours. But what's so striking to me about about this passage is there are plenty of innocent people involved. Only one here does God point to and say, yeah, he's mine. He's my prophet. Only one does he say his ministry is essential to setting things right. And he's not innocent at all, right? It's understandable that Abimelech has the wool pulled over his eyes. It's even, to some degree, understandable that Sarah allows herself to be put into this position. Unlike the other time where where what we get is basically just the silence of Sarah here, according to Abimelech, she's actually agreed and said, "Yep, that's just my brother." But nonetheless, this is Abraham's plan. This is Abraham's plan that's once again put his wife on the line. And uh, and still, remember here that this is not just merely a uh, a terrible marital sin. This is not just Abraham failing as a husband. He's once again putting the entire promise of God at risk. You may remember that just a few chapters ago, God had specified and clarified his promise and said, no, you don't seem to understand. It's not just going to be the child of Abraham. Ishmael's not going to cut it through the line of Hagar. It's going to be the child of Abraham through Sarah, your wife. In fact, in chapter 18, God had come and said, within a year's time, this is going to happen. Okay, so what happens right here, whether Sarah's lost forever or, um, or she has sex with another man, it puts the whole reality of what God is doing in a miraculous birth at question. Okay, this is a, a big deal. And uh, not only does God compensate for Abraham's tremendous failure, but he doesn't, He doesn't forsake Abraham in the midst of it. You have to wonder what Abimelech is thinking. What does the word prophet mean to Abimelech? What does it mean even in today's connotations? Does it not imply some standard of character and holiness? The only thing he knows about Abraham right now is that he put his wife at risk to save his own skin. And God, who comes to him in a dream, validating his reality, says, yeah, he belongs to me and you need him to pray for you. It's striking, is it not? Abraham is the one person in the Bible who's referred to as the friend of God. Now, it's pretty easy to see that God is the friend of Abraham. But nonetheless here, the recognition we need to make is something that we've seen throughout the story, that that, that primarily this is a story of sovereign promises and a gracious God. Although Abraham has grown incredibly in his character although his trust and his faith has grown and we'll watch him walk victoriously through through things, he's not merely fallible. It it sounds like in this story, this is a repeated and ongoing issue, right? There's a regular and consistent fear here. And we have to wonder what puts him in this position. And it's interesting, isn't it, that chapter 20 follows chapter 19, that he's just watched judgment lay out on an area, relatively near the Negev, by the way, known as Sodom and Gomorrah, for their behavior. We know that originally in Egypt, he said, the reason I behaved like this is because I didn't think you people feared God, right? He's afraid of how they'll behave, and so he adjusts his behavior to save his own skin. It may be that what he's just seen play out is a reminder of the potential of other people. But nonetheless, no excuse Here he is in the same circumstances, knowing how it went last time. Once again, God intervenes miraculously, saves Sarah from her husband, saves Abraham from himself, saves Abimelech from his ignorance. And uh, and then he says, give him back to my prophet. Give her back to my prophet, and he will pray for you so that you shall live. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? He's looking for a reason. He's not only recognizing that he's been sinned against he's offended by the offense he says in what way have I treated you that deserves this type of treatment why did you feel comfortable putting my life on the line and let's remember here that unlike some of our patterns of sinful behavior Abraham's seen this play out miraculously once right he he knows and I can't imagine here that he goes out ah, whatever I do God's got my back because if he really believed that he wouldn't have gone through this, right? But nonetheless, he, he complicates, he makes a mess of things again. And so Abimelech comes on pretty strong. He may recognize Abraham as a prophet, but he's not above questioning his integrity here. It's pretty clear that that's, uh, that's a surprising affirmation that God makes and not one that's in line with the circumstances. Verse 11, now I, it's important here that we remember that we're in the book of Genesis, Okay. And so we've been in this territory before, not just in Abraham's life, but in other characters of the book of Genesis. And this is going to f- sound surprisingly familiar. He says, why did you do this? What have you done? And look at how Abraham responds. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So the first thing he does is he says, it's your fault. He says, you're to blame because I was pretty sure you were bad people. And I couldn't trust bad people, okay? Then the second thing he says is verse 12, besides she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, I don't know if you can picture the circumstance, but Abraham has successfully put his foot directly in his mouth, right? As if this absolves or clarifies anything. He's clinging to the smallest thread of his integrity, which happens to be the fact that in one sense, he was telling the truth. But I think we'd all recognize that the lie of this reality, that the fact that she is his sister doesn't deny the fact that she is his wife, there's no justification. But he's reduced to blaming and excusing himself. And he continues on in verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, once again, the blame is laid at the feet of God. Just like we saw with Adam, who doesn't just say, it's the woman who gave it to me, but the woman you gave me. Here, he puts his entire life in the hands of God's fault. He says, God's the one who caused me to wander. I wouldn't be in this neighborhood at all if he hadn't sent me here, right? That's effectively what he's saying. And so, then he explains the circumstance, and once again, this is an embarrassing circumstance. He said, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place which we come. Say of me, he he is my brother." And so here we find out that it plays out badly twice, but it's been relatively successful and ongoing in other places. This is not just a happening. This is a standard practice. He says, anywhere we go, please do me this favor, wife who I'm committed to, wife who I love, so that I'm not put to death. Please put our marriage and yourself at risk by claiming to be only my sibling. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep, and oxen, and male servants, and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. Now, once again, we go, wait, why? It was the same thing with Pharaoh. After all this goes on, now, it was a little bit different in Egypt, because that was the bridal price. It was given to Abraham um, as a dowry. It was laid aside uh, to, to pay for the privilege of taking this bride, but here, this is after the fact, and I can't believe anything else than what Abimelech is doing here, is rubbing it in, okay, that this really is a bridal price, and he's paying it despite the fact that the marriage plan has been completely broken, despite the fact that he's been deceived. In fact, look at what he says in verse 15, Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, it's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. So now we get an idea here, but notice, notice the, the evident snark in his statement. He says, I've given you back to your brother, right? If air quotes belongs anywhere, it's on those words. He's intentionally using their deception. But what does he say here? I've given a thousand pieces of silver in all of this so that everybody will know this isn't because of Sarah. I'm not returning her because she's defective goods. I'm not returning her because I found something wrong with her or because I discovered that she'd been unfaithful. She she was about to be, but that's with a different man, right? He's, he's He's the affair, not the cuckold in this situation. But he does this because, once again, Sarah's integrity remains intact. And he wants everybody to know. He doesn't want them to continue to travel the land to have this negative aspiration. Now, clearly, Abraham's going to have one, and deservedly so. He's only doing this on Sarah's behalf. Um, So here's where things are. And to his credit, because we can imagine here that Abimelech has explained what's going on. He says, now, this only finishes. This only goes back to the way it's supposed to be, Abraham, if you pray for me which is humbling for Abimelech, but it's also, let's be honest, humbling for Abraham. I can relate in only one small way, and that's the fact that I have children, and sometimes, more than sometimes, I'm the one who's in the wrong. And it's a very different thing to ask your children to forgive you. It's a very different thing to be put in that place and then ask them if we can pray together to fulfill both the role of pastor and penitent at the same time. And so I can tell you that there's, there's a, a, uh, not only a humbling, but a very positive reality. There's a healing going on. It may seem at a first reading like this is, a, um, that this is not taking the circumstances seriously. Like Abraham's sins are being terribly passed over. That's, that's not the full reality psychologically of what's going on here. This is a humbling circumstance for Abimelech. And interestingly enough, Abimelech will return. And Abraham and him will strike up, maybe not a friendship, I don't think any of us would be surprised that there's not a friendship here, but a friendly relationship, as we'll see. But notice how it finishes here, verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. See, that's the verse that makes us think that there was something that the household was already aware of that had gone sideways and that that's why the relationship hadn't been consummated. But here, through these prayers, there's healing. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, I want to say two things here before we move on. One is about the character of God, and I think it's worth reiterating. When it comes to being a part of God's family, when it comes to being... Attached to this God, the God of the Bible, it comes with a tremendous amount of security. And we need to not overplay our hand here and assume that that means that there will never be any danger, uh, that there can never be any harm, that we will never suffer at the hands of other people's sins, because we will. But there is a sense where the Bible collectively promises us that the, um, the damage left by that sin will never be permanent. And this is a rather temporal and tangible demonstration of that. God miraculously interferes to save their marriage, to save the promise, to save, uh, you know, to save the whole situation, despite the fact that Abraham, who's supposed to be the husband, who's like we do today, to love and to protect, right, has these elements, has broken his vows, um, and yet God is there. And so, this is really helpful, because a lot of times, we're so afraid of the sins of others, we forget about the sovereignty of God. This is just reality. We know what sin is capable of, we know what human beings like us are capable of, and we fear. But if that fear trumps our recognition of the goodness of God, then we've, we've denied the reality of who God is. Remember remember that the God who intervenes in these circumstances does not intervene in the injustice of the cross. Remember that as his own son, who was fully innocent and righteous, who had lived out a life and a ministry of love and of healing and of truth, as he hung on a cross and cried out in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As those around mocked and said, if you're really that close to God, then why doesn't he deliver you from this? God did not. And yet even in that horror, God brought about good, the greatest good, the definitive good of our lives, that we were dead and are now alive because of the death of Jesus Christ. Nothing points to the goodness and the sovereignty of God more than the cross of Jesus, but we see it here as well. The the other thing I wanted to to say here about God, that was more about us, but about God is specifically, I want you to recognize here that the promises of God are on the on the shoulders of God. He's going to bring them to pass. That's a lesson that Abraham's had to learn the hard way, is he's tried to take the promise of God into his own hands and say, maybe when God said, I will give you a son, what he meant is, I will make a son for God by you know taking this detour route and adopting my wife's servant as a surrogate mother and having a child through that. Abraham was wrong. When God said, I will do, God meant I will do. And it's the same for us as Christians. The New Testament uh, constantly affirms and points to the fact that salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. It's not something that we do for him, but something that he has done, is doing, and will do for us. And the weight of that, the power of that, the surety of that is not on us, but on him. And so here we see that God has a plan to save the world. And right now it bottlenecks in the possibility, the promise of Isaac. And God's not going to let anything interfere with that. He knows who Abraham is. He knew when he chose him. He knows the risk of working with human beings, but it's no risk to God. So, this last little dangerous circumstance stands before the final consummation of the promise as we get in chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. That's a repeated refrain, not just in Genesis but throughout the whole Old Testament. God says he will do and then he does. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So much of the themes over these past, uh, you know, 25 years of Abraham and Sarah's marriage come to consummation here. We see that God has done just as he promised. We've seen here the fulfillment of circumcision. Once again, Abraham obeys and fulfills this rite. We see reference once again to the name of Isaac. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter. And when God promised Abraham a son in his own age, he laughed. And when Sarah overheard the angels of the Lord telling Abraham that it would be next year, she laughed. And here she says that anyone who hears this story will laugh. But here it's not the laughter of making fun of Sarah as, um, as you know, a um, tremendously old mother, but of joy, of mirth, of, of gladness. Um, and... And then she just points to the obvious, the striking. Who would have said to Abraham, your, your wife will nurse again? And yet here she is in her 90s with Abraham, her 100-year-old husband. The, uh, Paul in the book of Romans adds his interpretation of this. And him as good as dead, right? Being, as being that old, who would have thought? And yet that's what God has done. Now once again, a reminder, God has delayed the timeline here 25 years from promise to fulfillment. And the reason for Abraham, much as it is often the reason for us, is because that's what develops faith, right? Abraham has learned to believe in God, not just because God has shown up and done what he said, but because God has delayed the promise. And I know that's a little bit counterintuitive, but recognize how many times here Abraham has thought of other solutions and other ways. Abraham has put things at risk, and yet God has still been faithful. Faithful. Not only does he see the fulfillment of this promise not being possible in any other way, there's nothing else to call this but an act of God, but also he's discovered that God's faithfulness is not determinant on his faithfulness, on Abraham's faithfulness. And so he's grown in faith because he's grown in knowledge. He now knows who God is. But not only that, God also delays for a bigger reason because what he's doing in the line of Isaac is miraculous. Its destiny is miraculous. It's different. It's unique. Uh, The people of Israel are different than the Philistines next door. They're different than the people of Greece. They're different than the United States. And so it begins miraculously here to make a point, to make a statement. To say this is how it's going to be, to set up a standard that we'll see repeated not only in the life of Abraham, but his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, and then in his descendants Israel in the book of Exodus. Verse 8 The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, a little bit of cultural explanation two things weaning here, instead of, as opposed to nursing, right? Moving them from being breastfed to to um, childhood proper from baby. That line would have been later in Abraham's day than it is in most children's day today. So most likely we're talking about the age of three-ish. Okay? Second, the reason why it's worth celebrating is not just because Sarah gets, gets to go back to normality. Um, it's because uh, death for the infant community in the ancient world is a huge deal. Knowing that a child is going to survive and its odds of surviving before and after weaning is a massive shift. And so this is a celebration of the fact that Isaac is still alive. And so they have this great feast, verse 9, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to him, laughing. Now, The word here, uh, laughing, is close to the word Isaac, which is why the translator here has brought that out, right? Once again, someone else is laughing at Isaac, but here, because of Sarah's reaction, we see that that's not a good or an enjoyable laughter. Some of the older translations will say that she saw him playing, and that can sound confusing. It sounds inherently bigoted as if Sarah sees her boy playing on the wrong side of the tracks with the wrong type of person, a servant's child, and that's what she gets so uppity about. But actually, most of the time that this word is used in ways like this, it carries a very negative connotation. Okay? Sometimes that connotation is negative in terms of violent, and so sporting in the sense of combat. Sometimes it's ne- negative in the sense of sexuality. Um, we're not told here. It's, it's not explicit. But I think what's most likely, considering the play on words, is that in some way, Ishmael, who at this time is much older than his brother Isaac, he's a teenager, Isaac's, you know, just become, just stepped out of toddlerism, is somehow making fun of Isaac, okay? Somehow mocking Isaac. And this upsets her. And so notice verse 10, she said to Abraham cast out this slave woman and her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac now clearly not only is that a strongly worded statement but the way she puts things says a lot about how she feels about these things do you notice who's not named here not Hagar that's the slave woman not Ishmael that's the son of the slave woman right she keeps these things at a distance and we'll see that Abraham does not for what I will just right now call obvious reasons. But she pits that against Isaac. Now I want you to notice this sounds familiar too. Back in our story a little bit earlier, when they had tried to fulfill God's promise by adopting as a surrogate wife and a surrogate mother, Hagar, that as soon as she got pregnant, Sarah had a problem with it, that she saw basically Hagar beaming and esteeming herself more highly than Sarah, her um, maid, Uh, and, um, and so she does the same thing. She just, she comes to Abraham and she wants to get rid of Hagar. Now what did Abraham do there? He abdicates all responsibility. He doesn't interfere at all. He just says, she's in your hand, she's your servant, do what you want. And it tells us that Sarah treats her so poorly that Hagar runs away. Notice how different things are here. It's important to notice um, verse 11, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Okay. First off, notice the reason it's different here. It's because he sees Ishmael as he truly is, as his son. He loves Ishmael. And so this idea of you know, sending his own son away is hurtful to him. In fact, the phrase here for very displeasing, every time we find the word displeasing in the Bible, it means really deeply disturbed. It's a very emotional term. This is the only place in all of the Old Testament where we find that added word very, okay? So whatever it means in other places, he's extremely upset by this possibility. But, verse 12, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So unlike the last story where he listens to the words of his wife, doesn't consult or consider God at all, here he refuses to act. He's upset by this and God speaks to him and says, no, actually you need to listen to your wife. My hand is in this. I've already promised I'm going to do this through Isaac. And then he continues in verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. In other words, for your sake. And we've already had this promise given to Hagar that her son Ishmael would succeed and would have a future and that kings would come from his line. Here it's reiterated to uh, Abraham but I want you to recognize the context here the question is are you going to send this woman and her teenage son out to fend for themselves in a foreign land okay so with this promise comes the promise of protection for Ishmael It's not just saying, oh yeah I have a plan for him it, if you don't get this statement then what Abraham does next seems seems problematic. I'll show you what I mean verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now that seems terribly cold. It seems, in fact, like the provisions are extremely insufficient, right? She sets out on her new life, and he gives her a little bit of bread and a little bit of water, okay? Now, one thing, just an aside, when it says here a skin of water, we're talking about 30 pounds worth of water, Okay? This is, this is as much water as she can carry, most likely. So it sounds like a little. It's not necessarily a little, but it's not substantial, right? She doesn't, he doesn't send her away with animals from her flock and servants for the new household, despite the fact that when we get to the book of Deuteronomy and it talks about setting servants free, it says that you're supposed to be exorbitant in setting them out so that they can succeed as freed slaves, Okay. So it's not, not, not enough to just set them free. You need to give them the tools that they need and the livestock that they need and the help they need to get up and running on their own. Okay. We don't see that here, but the reason we don't see that, as surprising as it sounds, is because Abraham actually believes the promise. Okay. Now the reason why I'm reiterating and hammering this is because Abraham loses two sons in two chapters. And both of the times we see him responding in tremendous, very quick obedience. Both of them he rises early in the morning to fulfill it. And both of them are tremendous acts of faith, okay? And so I'm reading back what we're about to see in Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac into this story. Now, it doesn't change the fact that eventually... Supplies run out. If you trace on a map uh, where we assume Abraham is, because remember we, he was in the land of Ger- Gerar, uh, to where she's found at the end of that verse, which is the wilderness of Beersheba, it's pretty clear, like last time, she's on her way back to Egypt. okay? That's where she's going. But the distance, not, not only is the distance great between these two lands, but the territory or the climate is desert. Okay, it's not good, livable land. It's not very heavily occupied, as it says here. It's wilderness. And when it says she wanders here, that means she's lost. right? She's disoriented. And on top of that, verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Now remember, Ishmael is a teenager here. If, if you read this and you don't keep that in mind, it, it makes it sound even earlier in a verse because of the loose grammar, like she's actually carrying Ishmael. That's not what's going on. And even when it says here that she laid him under a bush, that doesn't mean that she was carrying him and she laid him down. It means that he faints and he, you know, she brings him over to where a bush is so he's at least in the shade. Um, verse 16, she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. Now just an aside, keep that in mind that measurement of distance there because it's a weird one. In fact, it's the only place I'm aware of in the entire Bible where we get distance by arrow. Okay? But it mentions this distance that it was about that far away and then look at what it says here. Let me not look on the death of the child. She sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So she's given up hope here and she can't endure the possibility of watching her son die. And so she gets far enough away that she can't hear him cry. And she just uh, resigns her fate to death. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Now, there's a couple of interesting things in here I want to point out. This is also familiar and repeated territory, but it is different, okay? For example, last time she was referred to as being spoken to by the angel of Jehovah, And here, despite every other occurrence in the book of Genesis, he's referred to as the angel of God. Now, I find that striking because Jehovah is the covenant name for God. And whereas she was still in the covenant, and what does the angel of the Lord tell her to do? Return to the house of your master, Sarah, okay? While she was still in the covenant, here, according to God's plan, she's been set free. And so the name here is different. Now, there may be a different reason that this is going on, but that is the one that I find to be the most intriguing. Not only that, but also it says that he has heard not her crying, but heard the voice of the lad. Did you notice that? So it says, um, the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now, we, we weren't told that anything about Ishmael, including that he was crying or crying out. It does tell us right in the verse before that she lifted up her voice and wept. But when it says that the angel or that God had heard the voice of the Lord, the idea there is one of answered prayer, is it not? And actually, I think this is pretty striking because it means in these dire circumstances, Ishmael is crying out to God to help him. We're not told the same thing about Hagar. In fact, you can kind of make a contrast here. How does Hagar respond to these circumstances? She cries aloud, but Ishmael cries out. And those are not the same thing. She recognizes the difficulty and terror of her circumstances, and it brings her to tears, but it brings Ishmael to prayer. Remember, this is Ishmael, the son of Abraham we're talking about. It's, it's not necessarily surprising. But also remember that this is Ishmael who, in some inappropriate way, is the cause of this whole problem. And yet God hears his prayers and he answers him. And so what does it say here? It says, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. He reiterates the promise here, verse 19. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And so here, the form of this miraculous provision is that suddenly she sees what she had not seen. She's literally about to die of thirst next to a well. But now her eyes are open, she's pointed in the right direction. And that might sound odd or weird to you, but actually in times of great duress, I can say I've been there where what I most need is right in front of me and I can't seem to find it. It doesn't matter if I'm hungry and I'm looking for the can opener. You know, things get hard when you're hungry and angry and upset and you've already written things off as not being fixable. But nonetheless, God, God demonstrates his presence in her and her son's life and draws her attention to the the fact that there's a well nearby. Now, that's another similarity with the last time she was in these circumstances. That also involved a well. In fact, she gave it a name. You may remember, the well of the God who sees me. But here, the emphasis is not on seeing, but hearing, right? Which is also what Ishmael's name means. God hears. And so here, God hears the prayers of Ishmael, um, and so they're saved. Verse 20 And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. So what we see here finally makes sense of that earlier statement, that the distance was about a bow's distance. This is actually really important, because what does it tell us about this story? It tells us that this story was recorded for us by Ishmael and his descendants, right? Right? You can imagine, can't you, Ishmael telling the story of how his family came to be and using this distance, being an archer and just saying, she put me about a bow shot away. And here it's left intact in the text. This is, this is a direct, small, albeit, but a direct piece of evidence of the authenticity of this account. Not somebody just writing it falsely, but recording history of eyewitness observers in their words. We don't have time to talk about it tonight, and we won't get there for years, but we'll see the same thing in the Gospel of Luke, that the sources that Luke testifies in the beginning that he has organized show their hand in their vocabulary and their perspective consistently, just like you would expect if a journalist went around and did interviews and put a story together, okay? Now, why does it tell the story of Ishmael at all? What the book of Genesis has done consistently is kind of like drawing a tree from the roots up. And so it follows the main trunk of the story, and then it branches off just to close off one line and come back to the trunk. And so we've already learned it's not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Now Ishmael's story has been closed, and it will stay closed. In the same way, last week, Lot's story was closed, and it will stay closed. And so now we come back, and we're ready to focus on Isaac, but but something comes first verse 22 At that time Abimelech remember this is the guy that we started the evening with Abimelech and Pickle the commander of his army said to Abraham God is with you in all that you do Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity but as I have dealt kindly with you so will you deal with me in the land where you have sojourned And Abraham said I will swear So Abimelech and one of his leaders comes to Abraham and just says, look, it's evident that God is on your side. We already know that Abimelech has personal experience in that, but when he says here that um, God is with you in all you do, he's probably pointing to the miraculous birth of Isaac, right? Can you imagine getting that baby announcement? And so he finds out here that this is happening. He's seen probably Abraham live out more of his life over the course of this period, and basically he wants a treaty. He wants an agreement of non, um, non-aggression, right? It's not that they're going to partner and do something together, it's just let's respectfully, and for our descendants that follow, let's just agree not to fight. Now, what's surprising about this passage, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but when we get conversations in the book of Genesis between foreigners They're verbose. We'll see this again in chapter 23. They're wordy. And so it's very surprising and striking that Abraham just says, sure, I will swear. But the reason we find out is he's actually being terse. He agrees to this, but he's got a grievance that he once dealt with. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, okay, and so here we get the reason why he's so terse. He says, yeah, we can have that agreement, but somewhere in the process of them going through this treaty, he says, oh, you should know, I dug a well, and some of your servants came and took it over and took it away from me, okay? Now, uh, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. In other words, Abimelech assures him that that wasn't intentional on his part. And in, to some degree, without saying it, he hopes that the treaty can still go forward. Okay. Um, now, verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now, it is worth mentioning here that that's a one-directional gift. Do you see that? It's Abraham who gave a gift to Abimelech. And what we understand of covenants in the old world means that Abraham sees Abimelech as the greater in this deal. And so it's, it's out of respect that he gives this gift. But, verse 28, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And so you can see this, right? He gives this gift, and then intentionally there's seven other sheep in the room. And the only reason they're there is to get Abimelech to notice them and ask about them, right? And so he says here, verse 29, Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And so I want you to notice here that Abraham is respectful, that he's interested in making this treaty. He's not terribly hostile, but at the same time, he wants to make sure that this issue is dealt with and that it's dealt with seriously. But he does it pretty strategically. Instead of making demands He just just adds this piece to it, knows Abimelech will ask about it and says, these seven are so that we can swear together and recognize that the well belongs to me. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. Now, um, Beersheba means the well of the seven or the well of the oath. And considering what's going on here with seven rams or seven ewe lambs, and an agreement, it probably means both, okay, but here it's told us that's why, but why does Abraham give it that name? Because he wants a permanent, uh, you know, in-name reminder of what's happened here, okay? Therefore, the place was called Bathsheba because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba, then Abimelech and Pickle, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now that tells us another thing. They make this oath where? At the well. Where is the well? Not in the land of Abimelech, okay? And so this, this is outside of his normal property, and that's another pointer to what's really happening here. Um, And then it says in verse 33 that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the lands of the Philistines. Okay, so what is this story really about? It's about a couple of things. First, now Abraham can stay put. Right? He's been traveling around, but now he has a safe, with a treaty agreement, ability to stay and water his animals sufficiently. And I'll remind you that's why Abraham and Lot separated originally, was because of the lack of guarantee of enough water for both of them. Okay? And so he settles in this land, and then it's interesting, isn't it, that the next thing he does is he plants a tree. We're told here he plants a tamarisk tree in this place, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. I just think it's interesting that what he does with this water is he plants a tree, something that requires water. It seems like the two go together. It seems to me the reason why the author takes the time to tell this story is because we're seeing just the beginnings, just the beginnings of God fulfilling his promises. God has promised that all of this land will one day belong to Isaac, but here he finally for himself, for the rest of his life, has permanence. In fact, we won't find his place in the land threatened from here on out, okay? And that tree, I think, is a perfect symbol of that because it's going to grow and it's going to exist after Abraham. I had a pop culture teacher. By the way, pop culture is not as exciting as it sounds. It was super boring. Um, But I had a pop culture teacher in college And he told us a story about he and his dad and how they had built a stone wall on the back of their property so that something they did would outlive them. And I remember thinking, how stupid, right? Because it seems like at any given time, and if I had had the address, I was this type of guy, I would have knocked it down myself. But at any time, this this heritage that they had created was at risk. But I do think the principle here is similar. The recognition is that this tree is not going to just continue to exist after Abraham, but it's going to continue to grow. And how does he refer to God here? As the everlasting God. In other words, God will outlive Abraham. One of the old famous classic preachers of American heritage used to say that God buries the minister and continues the ministry. And we're about to see that in Abraham's life. But even Abraham now is looking forward with what? With hope. Right, because of Isaac. Now we understand why this story is here because what follows? Chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, This is insane, and I don't know if you're familiar with the story, and that mutes the insanity of it, or this is the first time you've ever heard it, and it hits you as it should, but I want to point out a couple of things just in context. One, in Abraham's day and age, including in the land of Canaan where he lives, child sacrifice was a thing, okay? Two, biblically, it's something that God absolutely abhors. It's one of the greatest criticisms he makes against Israel and the residents of the land that he's promised to wipe out that part of the reason is because of this practice, because of the worship of Molech, because they were offering child sacrifices. Okay. Um, however, I want you to recognize that as we read this, as we often do in the perspective of the Bible, we have more information than Abraham does, right? How does the story open. After these things, God tested Abraham. Does Abraham know this is a test? No, right? When Job is going through all of his suffering, does he know why and the cause behind it? No, but we do and we're told in advance, okay? This is a standard practice and so it should not mute the experience for Abraham, but it should mute the reality of it for us, okay? Whatever God is doing here, the author wants us to know up front, to some degree, it's not what it looks like. I think that's tremendously important. Let me just add to that because every once in a while I meet someone and they say, what's the difference between Abraham being told by God to sacrifice their child you know, and, and a modern mentally ill person saying that God told them to kill their children? Now there's a couple of really important differences and I'll give you the first and most important one. Abraham doesn't kill Isaac. Okay? The self-same God who told him to do it stops him right before it happens. So that should be evidence part one, right? I'll give you a second thing, though. We have seen in Abraham's life a consistent reality of God's presence, a consistent reality of God rightly, or uh, Abraham rightly hearing from God as evidenced by the fact that God has promised to give him a child in his old age, and he has one as evidenced by the fact that he puts his life and his wife's life in danger and God sovereignly intervenes and a foreign king has a dream from the self-same God. There is a pattern here of trustworthiness of the voice of God that is super important. In fact, let's be honest, can we really interpret the faith of Abraham through this as being a standalone, isolated event from the rest of his life? This is the last of many challenges that Abraham has had to believe God. And if it's the last, it means that there's many that's come before it, and we have to see it through that line. I think all of us would look at this and say, I don't think I could do this, and that's absolutely right. Okay? This is not just a random test, as if God was just cranking a big wheel full of possibilities to see how Abraham was doing, and this is the one that came up for the day. This is the pinnacle of the story of Abraham's life. Okay? And it's the pinnacle because there's been lots of movement towards it. now what does he ask Abraham to do Abraham he said here I am he said take your son your only son Isaac whom you love do you feel the tension there why is it so heavy on the description it's drawing out the reality of who Isaac is not only is his son but he's also his only son now that may be the fact because Ishmael's gone right he's been sent away so now abraham has only one son at home it also may be god reiterating the fact that all of his promises are in this boy right i'm not recognizing ishmael as your son isaac is your only son and then it adds to it and this is the first time we find the occurrence the son whom you love okay this is the first occurrence of the word love in the entire bible and it's in reference to abraham's feelings for his son okay so If anything, here, if anything, here, God is helping Abraham to feel the weight before he kind of drops the other foot of what he requires. And so, what does he say? Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, even there, there's such a wretched tension. Do you feel it? He doesn't tell him the place. He says, go, and then I'm going to tell you the place, right? There's going to be a a process to this. We find out, excuse me, in a minute that this is a three-day journey. Abraham lives with the reality of this calling for three days, processing what it means with every step. We'll see he's forced to have awkward conversations that he has to navigate in moving towards this, okay? Um, And so notice here, verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, just as he did when he sent away Ishmael. First thing in the morning, he saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac, and he cut the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And why does it put it like that? Why does it say on the third day he looks up and he sees? Because you've got to feel the foreboding, right? You've got to recognize that that's it. Those are the mountains that I was called to. That's the place where my son dies at my hand. So verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Okay, so the first thing is he leaves the slaves behind, the servants behind. He says, you guys stay here. The rest of the way is just for me and Isaac and the donkey. Okay? Now, it is interesting here. He tells them that he's going to worship with them. Um, sorry, that they're going to worship, verse 6, and then come again to you. And specifically, he doesn't say, I'll go and worship and come again. He says, I and the boy. Now, that tension is just left as it is. And as we read it here, it could be a white lie right? What would it be like to be servants in Abraham's household and hear what he's about to do? Would you interfere? Would they interfere? So maybe what he's doing here is lying so that they don't actually know the gravity of what's about to happen. Or maybe it's the possibility that this is weighing so heavily on Abraham he misspeaks. Or maybe he hasn't decided if he's really going to go through with it. At this point in the story, we don't know why, and that's intentional, okay? You should flag these words as being inappropriate because you know what's happening and the servants don't, okay? But let's continue, verse six. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And so he loads up, he ends up leaving the donkey behind at this point and he puts the wood for the sacrifice. He makes Isaac carry it and they're marching up the mountain. Now, these mountains are steep, And the the terminology that's used here involves steepness. And so this is a hard hike to where they're getting to. And at this point, in the silence of this hike, Isaac asks a question. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? At this point, Isaac looks around and he goes, Hey, wait a minute. We're halfway up the mountain and we don't have a sacrifice. And so he asks his dad about it. And so look at how Abraham responds, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And once again, Abraham acts and speaks very cryptically here. It may be possible to read the Hebrew here. God will provide the sacrifice, comma, my son, who I'm addressing right now. But it's also totally able to read this as God will provide the sacrifice, who is my son? Okay? Now, is Isaac going to hear that? No. Are we going to hear that? Yes, because we know where things are going on, right? It, it's got this same tension in it. Now, there is another way to understand this, but until we know the resolve of this, don't get too early to get there. We'll come back. Verse 9. When he came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, Isaac is referred to in this passage as a lad. That starts, starts in the teen years and goes all the way into the 30s, okay? This is not a little boy and Abraham wrestling him to the ground and tying him up. This is a hundred-year-old man and his able-bodied son, okay? Okay? When it says here that he bound Isaac, the clear implication is that Isaac is a willing participant, which is insane, is it not? But it does fit with what we know of Isaac, that he's a man of faith and he trusts his father. He doesn't understand what's going on here, but it's clear here that if Abraham bound his son, it's because his son let him. Okay, and so at this point, Isaac understands who the sacrifice is. And so... um, Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And so here he gets all the way to the act itself. He raises the knife and he's interrupted by this angel of the Lord calling from heaven. Now, this is the first time that the covenant name for God, Jehovah, is used in this passage, which is actually a little bit weird for the stories of Abraham. It's not that God doesn't occur, but most of the time it occurs with an Adon, like the everlasting God we saw in the last chapter, or God the Most High, El El-Yon. All the other times, especially in narration, especially in the words of the narrator, he prefers Jehovah. But he hasn't used it at all in this passage, despite the fact that we see God in verse 1, in verse 3, again in verse 8, in verse 9. Four times the non covenant, just general name in the book of Genesis for God is used. It seems to me that that's intentional. And the reason I say it's intentional is because there's another person who has a favorite name for God, and that's Jesus. He constantly refers to Jesus as my father. Every occurrence of him referencing God in crying out to God, in speaking to God, in talking to God is my father except for one. And that's when he's on the cross and he, as I said earlier, quotes Psalm 22. And there it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's relatively clear that one of the things that's being expressed in that usage is distance, right? The reality, the tension of the son of God being crucified and crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me as one of distance? And it seems that the author is doing the same thing here. You can almost feel with Abraham, this doesn't sound like Jehovah, right? But here at this intervention, suddenly we have the name used again, the angel of the Lord. It seems to be intentional. And he stopped in his tracks. And so now he says that he's passed the test. I see that you wouldn't even withhold your son. Now, if I could put this in just terms that we could understand, the real tension here is not just the cost of a son, but also the cost of all of God's promises. We've seen the evolution of this promise from generic terms to specific. Your descendants through your son, through your son, through your own flesh, through your son, through your wife. Through Isaac, your seed shall be called, he was just told a chapter ago, right? When he sends away Ishmael. And so he knows that all of God's promises are entrusted to the life of his son, who has not yet had any children. And so what he's doing here is not just putting Isaac on the altar, but the promises of God themselves. Now, there is a principle here that I think is really important because here the question is, Abraham's given all he ever wanted, right? He has the greatest gift, his son, his only son whom he loves. Everything that God has promised him, what he's waited for 25 years. And so there's a tension here between the gift and the giver, right? Is he willing to trust Abraham despite the fact that he already has what he wants or willing to trust God despite the fact that he already has what he wants? Is he willing to love God more than he loves the gift that God has given him? Those things are clearly in play here But it's still, appropriately, we should go, why? Why would Abraham do this? What is going on? Is he expecting this sort of interference? Is he in on it? You know, does he know there's going to be a pop quiz on Mount Moriah, and so he's studied up? Is that what's going on here? It doesn't seem likely. In fact, Paul tells us uh, in the book of Romans a little bit about this, and then the author of Hebrews takes it further. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Isaac, or Abraham did this knowing that God was capable of resurrecting Isaac. He was so convinced now of God's ability and power that even if this demanded the death of Isaac, God would surely bring him back to life because that's where all the promises were and God keeps his promises, which is striking. Okay? But nonetheless, he's willing to go through with it. God interrupts and calls to him and he says, now I know. Now it's been proven. Now it's been demonstrated. Now he continues on, verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Now I may be wrong on this, but I'm going to throw it out there because I think this is what I remember. The way that this is tensed, it's not that the ram has been there the whole time. It's that as he looks up, a ram runs by and gets stuck in a bush. Okay? This is like Uber delivery of a sacrifice okay not something he didn't see before necessarily because you'd hear a ram caught in the thicket you'd be very aware of it but something right there in the moment as soon as he stopped as soon as he hears this voice from heaven there is the sacrifice now notice even Isaac asked where is the sheep for the sacrifice and here we have a ram there are only two places in the old testament law where a ram is used for a burnt offering, for that sacrifice in particular. One is the ordination of a priest, which you can see in Leviticus chapter nine, verse two. And the other is on the day of atonement. You can see in Leviticus 16. Now, if you're not familiar with the day of atonement, this is the one day a year when the high priest actually goes into the Holy of Holies, the center area of the temple, the place where the Ark of the Covenant is, the place where God's glory dwells. Just once, and only the high priest would go in with this sacrifice, the blood of a ram, and sprinkle it on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant itself. Okay? And that was to atone for the sins of Israel. That's why it's called the Day of Atonement. Those are the only two places where we see a ram as a burnt offering. Okay? Um, uh, but nonetheless, here's the ram, and let's continue. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, we have to pause there and do a few really important things. First off, when we read this story, we generally put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham, right? And so, um, so your heading might say here, the sacrifice of Isaac, or it might say God tests Abraham, or, um, or even the New Testament authors point to this as being a tremendous act of faith, of which we'd all agree. But it's interesting to note that the ancient Jews saw themselves in Isaac, right? Because no Isaac, no Israel. And on top of that, on top of that, when we get to the Exodus, we're going to see firstborn sons on the altar again. Okay. Remember that the last plague that God brings on Egypt is the death of the firstborn son. But the Jews are subject to that as well, except for what? Except for this practice of the Passover with the slaying of a lamb and blood put over the door so that the angel of death will pass over so that their firstborn won't die. And as you read on in the book of Exodus, you discover that the Levitical priesthood stands in the place of Israel's firstborn children who belong to God. Here's the point that I'm making. That God would take the life of a child is something that Israel understands. That the firstborn belongs totally to God is something that Israel understands. That Isaac is a sinner who's worthy of death is something that Israel understands and we'll understand it in a few weeks. Okay. But they saw themselves here not in the great and tremendous hero of Abraham but in the tension of the deserving of death and the consequence of sin in Isaac. In fact, and this is interesting, there is one place where an ancient rabbi points to the wood that Isaac carries on his shoulder being like the carrying of a cross because they get the death sentence that's going on here and in in Roman Empire days, a cross is the death sentence they know. The second thing I want to point out here is that clearly this passage reminds us of Jesus. In fact, here this happens at Mount Moriah. This is where the temple is built. Look at 1 Chronicles. On Mount Moriah is where Solomon builds his temple. And so later on when, when Jesus is crucified, this is the area that we're talking about. This is Jerusalem that we're talking about. okay. And when we hear, take your son, your only son whom you love, it sounds tremendously familiar, right? When we look at here, and not only do we have the wood laid on the shoulders of Isaac, but we also have a clear and willing sacrifice in Isaac, despite what we would expect. It all sounds like Jesus. Is it justifiable to think that there's a correlation here more than just look-alike? Scholastically, we call this typology. And the New Testament refers to this as being a valid way to read our Bibles, especially in the Old Testament. The idea of a test is that God, in history, used events, people, objects, uh, as living prophecies. So he did something historically that pointed beyond to something coming. Okay? And so in Romans chapter 5, it talks about Adam being a type um, Uh, there's plenty of other types that are listed in the New Testament. The entire temple and the sacrificial system are all just a living picture of what Jesus would do when he came. But, how are we to control ourselves? How are we to not reduce ourselves to just assuming that everything's about Jesus and taking every little detail and trying to connect it to the life of Jesus? Because it's very possible to do this in other places. Right? We could take you know, a, um, a history of World War II. And if we look hard enough, we're going to find things that remind us of Jesus. That's just nature. So how can we know that we're not being subjective? Is it really fair to take these ancient, not merely Christian, but Jewish scriptures and impose a Christian understanding on them? And I will say yes when you play by the rules. Okay, so here are the rules. Rule number one, the New Testament spends a lot of time telling us about typology okay jesus's apostles the ones who jesus taught from the scriptures everything about himself beginning with moses which means beginning with genesis sometimes point to things in the old testament and say now this was a shadow of the things to come now this was a type and the archetype was jesus okay and so if the new testament talks about it then you should be free to ask in what way is it a type But there is a second one and I find this one to be tremendously important and very intriguing and that's that in the topology of the old testament we see a forward-looking aspect in other words Abraham sees this as a type okay now when we get to the temple we'll see the same thing they know that this was built according to the plan in heaven that everything is designed by God for a reason. It's intentional. But notice again what, God, what Abraham calls this place in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will, future tense, provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be future tense provided. Somehow, Abraham looks at what happened and he goes, this is about something to come. God will provide a sacrifice. Not just Abraham, but everybody calls it by this name knowing that that's what's expected, okay? This is an ancient expectation that God has a plan, okay? And so it's completely valid and Jewish even to read this as typological, to recognize here that God has intentionally and historically pointed to the future of what Jesus would do. Now, The place that's the most striking that draws this together, you will miss if you're not paying attention. And that's in Romans 8, 32, where it says, for God did not spare his own son. He spared Abraham's, but he didn't spare his own. Okay, and so it seems even Paul, in using that language, and he's already talked about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac back in chapter 4. Now he picks up that language and he puts it in the same terminology and he says, there's a difference here. God did not spare his own son. Even when John talks about the picking up of the cross, the wording he uses is the same wording that's used here in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, for him carrying the wood on his shoulders. The New Testament authors are into this and what they recognize and what Isaac uh, represents here is the fact that there needs to be someone in his stead that all of us are Isaac without a sacrifice in our place. And the Bible says that all of those sheep and rams, including the one on the day of atonement, point forward to Jesus. Now, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now, I want you to recognize how weird that language is. What do you do if you really want somebody to believe you? I swear on my mother's grave. I swear to God. Right? I swear on the Holy Bible, whatever it is. What does God say here? He says, I swear on me. Okay? Now, the author of Hebrews helps us understand this, and he points out that there's nothing higher to swear on. When God takes an oath, what does he put his hand on to make his promises valid and believable? He is the trustworthy God. He is the creator God. But even so, it's striking that here he takes an oath. He swears to Abraham. See, what we're going to get is a reiteration of the same promises that we've heard over and over, but this is the pinnacle of the explanation, okay? And so here, it's not just I will do, I swear on me that I will do these things with an oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. See that word, surely? Surely. It's added on the top of what we've already heard. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. We've heard the stars of heaven before, but another metaphor is added. Imagine that you're walking along the beach and you can collectively think about all the beaches in the world. That will be the number of Abraham's descendants. That's the picture that's given. It's on top of all the stars in the sky. He continues on and he says, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now I don't know if you can tell by verse 19, but we're starting to wind down into the epilogue of Abraham's life. This is the high point. It's the last time the promise is given to Abraham. Next time it's given, it's given to Isaac. But this is also the high point of Abraham's faith in his knowledge and in his trust of God. In it's the high point in God miraculously intervening in Abraham's life. It's all right here. And the story has clearly led to this pinnacle and makes it intentionally a pinnacle. And so the, the promise here is, is extended and built upon to make that point. Verse 20, now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Kised, Hazo, Pildash, Jilpdad, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramua, bore Taba, Graham, Tasha, and Mekah. Now here's, once again, we're like, wait, what? Why? Why are we learning about his distant cousins? Because that's what happens here. Why do we go from this huge pinnacle in Isaac's, uh, you know, sacrifice and the binding of Isaac uh, into hearing just, he got a letter in the mail, a Christmas letter that explained what was going on with the family back home. What is this? See, here's something about the author of Genesis where we see his intentionality. When he tells stories, he doesn't like to fill in all the gaps, have you ever talked with somebody who forgets you don't know who they're talking about? And so they're telling this story and then they're always stopping to define the character that they just brought up. He was my roommate and that's his ex-girlfriend. and right. The author of Genesis never does that. Instead, what he does is he finds a place to put it before the story he wants to tell so that the characters are already known. In other words, this genealogy only exists to introduce us to Rebecca. Now, why is Rebecca valid and at this point? Because we're making this transition from Abraham who had a wife but no child to Isaac who has neither. Okay? And if the promise is going to continue, then the next hurdle is now no longer Abraham's faith or his, in, uh, uh, or his unfaithfulness. It's no longer Sarai's infertility or the threat of Hagar. Now the thing is that we have a bachelor. right, And that's where the story stops. And so he sets this out just so when he tells the story... We'll know where he's going. Now, there's one other thing that he wants to close up here before he moves into the life of Isaac. When we get to chapter 24, which we won't do tonight, but when we get to chapter 24, Abraham is going to officially step back into the shadows. Eventually, we'll get his epitaph, his tombstone, the story of his death. We'll get filled in on a little bit more of his life, but right now is the handoff, Okay. Before it turns to Isaac in chapter 24, though, it wants to do one more thing. Because remember, Abraham wasn't merely promised a son and descendants. He was also promised the land. And so for that reason, before we move on from Abraham, that promise is pushed forward. Chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirith Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. Okay. Remember, he's just a wandering shepherd. He doesn't have a place to bury his dead. And for the Jews, burial is the only way you deal with the dead. Cremation is not an option. To this day, it's not an option for the Jews. And we'll get to why that is in just a second. But he doesn't have a place to bury her. He doesn't have any place to leave Sarah's body. And so he goes to the Hittites and he says, I need a burial plot. Now, look at how they respond in verse five. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold you from his tomb or hinder you from burying your dead. Now, two things here. I want to be really quick in this chapter because most of what we're seeing here is just Eastern haggling. It's just cultural and so I want to help you understand it, but I don't want to get bogged down in it. First, I want you to notice that he asked for a place to bury her, and clearly, because we'll see the end of the chapter, he wants to buy a plot. And when they say, bury her in any of our choicest tombs, they're not only trying to meet him halfway, they're really saying they don't want to sell. Right? They're, they're just saying, on loan, put her anywhere you like. But they're not really interested in him buying property, they're very polite. Abraham's really polite. He says, I'm just a stranger and a sojourner here. And they say, no, you're a prince of God, right? They refer to this reputation he has in the land that we saw with Abimelech. And now it um, pushes forward. Verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. Okay, when you haggle in this type of a setting, you're seated. He takes the time in the middle of this to stand up and bow to all of them before he speaks. And what does he say? Verse eight, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field for the full price, let it give him to me in his presence as property for a burying place. And so he's already got a choice spot sticked out or picked out. He points out that it's on the edge of the property. So he doesn't need to put a hole in Ephron's property. He just wants to buy this last piece of it. Um, And he says here, I want to pay full price for it. But notice how it responds here, verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, most scholars believe here when he says give, it's generous, but it's avoiding this same issue. It's avoiding this uh, issue of the interchanging of property. And we've already seen that uh, Abraham is very wise with foreigners and he makes sure to get it in writing effectively. And so he doesn't deny the gift or the graciousness that that Ephron has showed, but, verse 12, then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, my lord, listen to me, a piece of land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. And so, once again, it sounds like what Ephron is saying, it's not worth that much, just take it, okay? My understanding is, even to this day, you can have haggling conversations in the East where these words are going to come out of their mouth and they're basically going to say, it's, it's just a horse, just take it, okay? You grab that horse, you're going to be in trouble, okay? Um, but even if this is truly gracious, Abraham refuses. And what does he do? Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and he weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Now, the way you paid for stuff was by weight back then, which means we don't actually know if 400 shekels is good real estate prices or bad. But nonetheless, Abraham doesn't haggle at all. This is definitely a higher price, and he just pays it, okay? He's not interesting in, if they had wanted to gouge Abraham, he would have put up with it, but he's not going to haggle. And let's be honest here, this is his wife's burial that he's talking about, so it makes sense. He's not, he's not going to play the game. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the west of the east of, or it was to the east of Mammer, filled with the cave that was in it, and all the trees were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. I want you to notice the way that that's stated. It's the exact lay of the land, the names of both purchasers, and then the witnesses present, okay? This is a verbal version of a written contract, okay? And so once again, we see a documentary, uh, a a document aspect to what, what is going on here, but it's official, and that's the point. Verse 19, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre. Notice it mentions that it was east of Mamre. It is interesting that Mamre is the land that Sarah was living in when God told them she was going to have a child. And so it may be here that he picks this land because it's specially significant to Sarah. We're not told. That is Hebron in the land of Canaan. Verse 20, the field and the cave that in him were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, this is the only piece of property that Abraham purchases. He has water rights in the well, but a well is not property. Okay? That secures him in the land, but this is ownership. This is something he can pass on to his children. However, this is the only piece that Abraham ever owns. Okay? A burial plot. Now, it'd be easy to read that as being merely a statement of necessity. Well, he's got to bury his dead somewhere. But we've already seen they were willing to let her be housed in their property. But he chooses to buy it. Not only is Sarah buried here, but so is Abraham. So is Isaac and Isaac's first... Sorry, so is Jacob. Isaac might be, I don't remember. But so is Jacob and Jacob's first wife, Leah. This is the family tomb, okay? Um, In fact, Josephus tells us that it was still a known place in his day that could be visited. And there's a mosque today that's in this general place with a tomb in its basement that most people believe is probably this place, okay? Um, But nonetheless, why does it emphasize here property? We've already seen because the land was promised to Abraham and here he gets his first piece, right? His down payment of God's promises. But it's a burial plot. If you go to Jerusalem today and you go just to the east of the city, in fact, if you stand in Jerusalem and look out to the east, there's a hillside right outside the city that is just a massive cemetery, the entire hillside, all the way up and, and very large, and it's ancient looking. The tombs in that hillside date back not just hundreds, but thousands of years to when to when Israel was there before it was sacked, okay? They've been burying their dead on this same hillside for a long time. And the reason is because before Jesus came, in the first century world, the Jews were anticipating the Messiah to return based on the prophecies of Ezekiel and pass through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And so these tombs were put there as effectively front row seats because they were anticipating that when the Messiah came, He would resurrect Israel and they would have the land as promised, okay? The intention here is the same. Abraham wants to live in the land because that's the land he's been given. And he's looking forward to the reality of that. And so let me put it in the words of the author of Hebrews, and then we can talk about what it means for us, and then we'll close for the night. Okay, just a few verses from here. Now he continues on in verse 13. These all, the patriarchs, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Notice it says strangers and exiles. Those words are paired together in the same way that Abraham refers to him in the chapter we were just reading. I'm stranger and foreigner here. That's the only place in Genesis where the two are connected. And here in Hebrews, it refers to those as strangers and exiles. He's thinking of the same thing here. And listen to what he says. Verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. And if they'd been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay, and so... Um, what, what the author of Hebrews is trying to point out is that Abraham's death and his burial of his wife was an act of faith, in trusting that God was going to fulfill his promises just as he said he was, and so he wanted to be there. He had front row seats. His grandson Jacob's going to do the same thing. He'll be living in Egypt, and he'll take all of his sons, and he'll say, swear to me that when I die, you'll return my body to Israel. And so when, when uh, Israel walks out of the Exodus, hundreds of years later, they carry in a casket the entombed corpse of the great patriarch Jacob. And why do they do that? Because they believe in the promises, because they're looking forward. And so even this act is a tremendous act of faith. Even though it's just a tomb, it's a place for him to be where the promises will be fulfilled. And the author of Hebrews updates this for us and he says they're not the only ones who are strangers and pilgrims. They're not the only one who are looking forward to the fulfillment of promises. We are restless here. We are strangers and pilgrims on the earth because our home is still to come. And so our lives, like Abraham, in even the smallest ways of when you haggle and how you die reflect that, or they don't. Either we're looking to the heavenly city or were satisfied in our earthly home. But for Abraham, he knew God well enough, and God had proven himself so faithful despite the unfaithfulness of Abraham that he he lays up his investment there, and the only thing he owns when he dies, the only thing he passes on as an inheritance is a place to bury his children because this is the land that God will give them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham. We thank you for the father of faith, this tremendous example who doesn't just show us what a hero of faith looks like, it shows us of a, a, a faithful God, a God worth trusting. And I pray, Lord, that in our own journeys, and our own paths, with the promises that you've given us as Christians and as your church, that we would walk in trusting ourselves to the city whose builder and maker is God that we would look forward with hope and endurance, knowing that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And I ask, Lord, that our life would be demonstrably different because of that hope, that like people looked at Abraham and referred to them as the prince of God and as the one that God is surely with, that people would look at our lives and say, it's not explainable if this life is all there is. I ask that you'd help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.